Well, it might not appear this way to you, but as I look around this room, I think that there's a lot of people in here who see the world in different ways. We're all united uh, by what we're here for today, but when we leave here, we, we see the world along very different lines, and some of these are, are hugely important topics that divide us. And so I thought I might sow some discord this morning as I begin this message by, by illuminating some of these. And so this, I'm going to need your help this morning with this. And so I'm going to kind of do a this versus that. And so when I hit the thing that you like, raise your hand. And if you like the other, feel free to boo. Just don't throw anything my way, you know, for putting these things on the screen, but uh, I thought I'd like, ask you to get involved here a little bit. This is Memorial Day weekend, the, the start of summer, and so when you're having a cookout, my question is, are you a mustard person or a ketchup person? Boo, okay, so we got some ketchup haters in the house. I like this, okay. So do we have any iPhone people? Okay, Android people? Okay, actually pretty good divide. Okay, so if you're going to go to Chick-fil-A, not today because it's closed, I'm sorry, uh, but if you're going to go to Chick-fil-A, are you a Nuggets person or a Strips person? And then if there's a bunch of beef lovers in here who didn't raise their hand for chicken at all. Uh, <laughs> if, if you're buying a new computer, do you buy a Mac or do you buy a PC? Oh, wow, this is a PC crowd. If you're going on vacation, do you go to the beach or do you go to the mountains? You already live in the mountains. Why would you want to go to the mountains? I mean, come on, people. And then this is the one I'm a little bit scared about because I think people in Prescott have very strong opinions about this. Do we have dog people? Do we have cat people? Oh, more dog people. Okay. Well, you know, these are just examples of some ways that we look at the world differently. And I think when we get down to it, uh, there are often some difficulties in our lives when we try to relate to people who don't see the world the same way we do. And these are pretty tame topics. This one's a little bit divisive. But, but for the most part, the, the ones I've showed you are pretty tame topics. But when it comes to more passionate ones we can get into some pretty heated arguments. We can get into some pretty heated discussions. And it's very easy to go, man, I don't know how you look at the world that way. I don't know how you believe this. I don't know how could somebody see that. I don't know how they could hold to that. And, and over the last few weeks, we've been trying to lean into this part of our lives with this series we're calling Not Like Me. We've tried to lean in and say, hey, how do we come to the place where we recognize there's people who don't see the world the way that we do, and yet... We can't just do what our world often does, which is mute them, unfriend them, unfollow them, and just kind of leave them aside. We're, we're called to something different. We're called to love them and think about them and serve them like Jesus did. We're called to not just tune them out and create our own echo chambers where everybody looks like us and believes like us. We're called to, to interact with them the same way Jesus did. And in this series, we've been reminding each other that, that when it comes to Jesus, he isn't merely our Lord and Savior. Although he is. He's the one we've been singing about all morning. He's the one who came and died for us. He's our hope for this life and the next. And he's our example. He is a picture of what it means to be truly human. He's given us the example to follow as we, we live our daily lives. In some ways, he's walked the path before us, and he's calling us to follow in his footsteps. And what that means is that when we see Jesus doing something or acting some way or treating some person in a particular way, we're called to do that too. And what we've said in this series is that when it comes to people who weren't like Jesus, 
Jesus loved those people. Those people were the most at home with Jesus. The people who come to mind for you when you go, man, that's the last person I would invite to my house this weekend for a cookout. That's the kind of person that somehow was most at home with Jesus. And that's a person who was created in God's image. That's a person who Jesus died for. That's a person that he loves. And that's a person that is capable of becoming a new creation. I had a friend who once told me, she said, my mom once reminded me that there'll be people in heaven with you that you'd never invite to dinner at your house. Oh, there, you're here, you know? I'm gonna spend eternity with you, you know? And, and we need to get ready for that today. And I think the challenge is, how do we begin to treat those people in the same way that Jesus did? And so the big idea is we bring this series to a close today, this Memorial Day weekend. And so if you're tuning in online from the beach or the mountains, thanks for joining us. This is our big idea for the message today. That if you want to transform a relationship like that, serve the other person. If there's a relationship that you struggle in, if there's a relationship that you want to see changed, if there's a relationship you want to see look different, the way to do that is to serve the other person. And Jesus gives us such a beautiful picture of this. And so today what I want to do is I want to talk to you about how I think Jesus actually laid the foundation, opened the door, prepared the way, set an example for us. And I've said that he, take, he took three steps to be able to help us in this way. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open up with me to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Matthew is the 40th book in the Bible. It's the first account of the life and teaching of Jesus. And Jesus taught a lot, but most of it is broken up in the Bible. But in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if I gave a sermon of this length today, you'd feel a little cheated because it was about 17 minutes, pretty short by American sermon standards. But 2,000 years later, we're still reading it because it's a radical, challenging message. So beginning in Matthew chapter 5, Verse 43, this is what we read. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the common belief of that day. He said, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends his reign on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. The first thing Jesus does for us is that he rejects humanity's approach to enemies. Jesus is laying the foundation for us to serve other people and transform relationship, and he begins by rejecting humanity's approach to enemies. In this section, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has this pattern. If you want to go home and read it, you can follow this, where he'll take these common beliefs in the society. He'll say, hey, all of you believe this. All of you have been taught this, but here's this new perspective. Here's this new teaching. And so what he does here in Matthew 5, 43, he says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now at this point, the whole room goes, mm-hmm, amen. Preach it, brother. You know, they're all nodding their head. But then he pulls the rug out from under them and he goes, but I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. And the room goes quiet. Because he didn't just say it. 
he expected them to do it. And 2,000 years later, this is an uncomfortable teaching. So you've got to understand that Jesus would not have a church packed to the gills if he was alive and preaching today. Some of you would leave his church because you wouldn't like what he preached. He'd have these moments like we're having right now where things get a little bit uncomfortable in the room. And he'd push people. Because he says, hey, all of you love the idea that you love the person who's easy to love and you hate the person who's easy to hate. But my new way that I'm telling you is you love those who are hard to love and you pray for those who are making your life worse. See, he rejected our natural, normal approach to relationships. And it was radical then, and it's radical today. I don't wake up and want to love my enemies, and neither do you. If you look at your prayer list, there's not a lot of enemies on it, right? And if there is, it's like a biblical prayer, you know, God smite them, you know, and (laughs) cause them to experience suffering. Most of us don't say, hey, bless that person who's trying to make it worse for me. God, bless that person who has it out for me. God, I hope you give greater things to the person who cost me that job or cost me that contract or cost me that relationship. And most of us, when we're challenged with the idea to pray for someone that we hate or don't love, like why on earth would I do that? Because some of us know what would happen if we prayed for someone like that. You see, it's impossible to see an enemy through hate when you pray. This is why it's a dangerous thing to start praying for somebody. Because what happens when you pray is you cannot preserve that hate. You cannot preserve that disdain for the enemy. And that's why Jesus is telling them to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because he knows that over time, that view and that relationship is going to shift. You know this because you've prayed for things before. You know what prayer does. Prayer aligns our heart with God's. So when you start praying for your enemy, you stop seeing them through your hate and as your enemy and you start to see them as God sees them. This is why prayer is a dangerous thing. You have somebody in your life that you're having a hard time getting along with? Pray for them. You have a hard time forgiving somebody who hurts you? Pray for them. There's somebody that you don't ever want to run into at Costco on a Sunday in Prescott? Pray for them. Because if you do, you will begin to see them as God does. See, what Jesus does is he rejects our natural response to enemies. But he's not done because he's Jesus. And if you have your Bible still open, I'd encourage you to go to Matthew chapter 20. Because what Jesus does in the first teaching is he teaches the crowd that's gathered to hear his sermon on the hill, his sermon on the mount. But then he's speaking in Matthew 20 to his followers, his disciples. And they're talking about who is going to have the greatest position when he ends up in heaven. And Jesus goes a very different direction with his teaching here. And he, he calls to them and he says, you know 
that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, those who are their ruling, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So these are the models you've had about what it means to be powerful and admirable. He says, but it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The second thing Jesus does to set us up to transform our relationships through serving other people is that he establishes a new standard for greatness. Jesus establishes a new standard of what it means to be truly great. You see, if you look at world history, if you look at culture and literature pre-Jesus, what you find is that the people that were most admired, the heroes, the superheroes, you might say, the models, the mentors, all of those were people who had tremendous power. They were marked by tremendous ego. And if you want to go do some research, if you want to today and you're looking for a book to read over the weekend, go buy the book by John Dickinson called Humilitas. He's an Australian uh, professor and academic. And what he did is he studied the history of virtue across culture and time. And what he found is that in the culture of our world, something remarkable happened in the first century, which was humility and servanthood began to be valued as admirable qualities for the first time. Before the life of Jesus, if you put other people above yourself and were humble, that was not a virtue to be admired. It was a flaw in your character. Today, if you have a boss who's full of themselves, if you have a boss who's driven by ego, if you have somebody you work with that is all about them, you don't want to be like them. But if you meet somebody who has every reason to be proud and egotistical, and they're humble, and they serve other people, and it isn't about them. You go, man, I want to be like them. The reason that you value that characteristic is because Jesus established a new standard for greatness. And you don't have to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, much less died in your place, to acknowledge that he has changed the way we view character in this world. In Matthew 20, he says, you know that in this day, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. These are the Caesars, the Romans, and their great ones exercise authority over them. If you were great in this era, you had power. And he's saying to his disciples, I know none of you guys want to be ruled and governed by the Romans. You don't want to be under their power. For 200 years, the Jews had been ruled by the Romans. He goes, but I know that if you were given the chance, you would love to have that kind of power. You love to be the one ruling. None of us wants to be ruled over, but a lot lot of us would love to rule, right? None of us want to be the person who is pushed down by somebody who has all power and authority. But if we're honest, and this is church, it should be the most honest hour in your week, you'd love to have that kind of power. You'd love to have that kind of position. You'd love to have that kind of influence. And what Jesus says is not so with you. He says, you're not great because you have power. He says, you're great because you serve. True greatness is not found, he said, in having all the power. True greatness is found 
in serving. And it's a really uncomfortable teaching because most of us don't like the idea of serving. We want to get to the place where we're in charge and where we have all the power. But what Jesus is saying is, is if you can't actually serve, you don't deserve to lead. At Cornerstone, we say it this way, that if serving is below you, then leading is beyond you. If you don't have the character to serve, you don't deserve the power that comes with leadership. Because we've all been around somebody who has more power than they have character, right? We've all been around somebody who doesn't have the character to have the office they hold. This is the problem in America, that your gifts get you opportunities that your character can't sustain. Even in the church today, we're seeing really influential pastors who have tremendous charisma and giftedness. And their lack of character and emotional health is destroying their church. It isn't because they don't know how to preach. It's because they don't know how to serve. They don't know how to be under. Therefore, they don't know how to take care of those who are under them. And Jesus is radically changing the way they look at all of this. And what he's saying is we can't become like Jesus without serving others. You say, hey, I'm a Christian, which means a little Christ. I'm a follower of Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. Okay, then serve. In America today, sometimes we have this idea that, that to be most like Jesus means you know this book better than anybody else. And that is a component of spiritual growth, knowing and understanding the Bible. But knowing the Bible is not a proxy or an excuse away from serving other people. Sometimes the people who know the most about this book struggle the most to live it out. And what we're saying is that, hey, you want to be more like Jesus? Well, begin to serve. Because nothing will reveal, I'll, I'll just put it this way, nothing has revealed my character flaws like serving other people. My pride, my ego, my sense of control, my insecurity, all of that comes out when I start to serve. All of those things become evident when it's not about me, but I want it to be about me. And at Cornerstone, we've built our church around four key steps. If you're here for any period of time, we're going to talk to you about gathering in worship, connecting in a group, serving where you're gifted, and engaging your circle. And all the time, we have people who come in, love our church, but then realize we're going to call you to serve as part of spiritual growth, and they go, hey, I'm going to go somewhere else where I don't have to serve, where I can just be fed, where I can just take in. Eventually, what you've gone through, what you've experienced, what you've been given, what's been invested in you has to then translate into something you give away. And for some of you, when you came to Cornerstone, you were broken. Some of you who are here today are broken. I'm so glad that the history of our church is, is like a spiritual hospital of sorts where people come in who are profoundly wounded. Some of you came in with scars from other churches. Some of you came in from wounds from spiritual abuse. And you came in and 
You couldn't tell from the outside. From the outside, you look good. But on the inside, you were broken. He had wounds. That's part of my story. I came here as the pastor of the church. And I had scars. I had scabs. I had some open wounds too. And over the last three years, God has used you to do a tremendous work in me. And if that's your story, I am so glad you're here. But I have a question for you. And that's this. Why has God healed you? I know you came here to experience healing. But some of you have been healed. And the question is why? Did God heal you for you? Did God heal you for your own self? Or is it possible that God healed you so that he could use your healing in the service of others? This is the amazing thing that God does. And he does stuff that we don't comprehend or see coming. And what God does is he takes the very thing that wounded you, the very place where you were hurt, and he turns it and uses it to serve someone else who is going through the exact same thing. He turns you from a wounded person into a wounded healer. And some of you who came to Cornerstone and you've been here two, three, four years, I'm so glad that you came and I'm so glad that you've been healed. The question now is why? And is it possible that it's time for you to begin to serve? Is it possible that it's time for you to give someone else the gift that you were given? The final thing that I want to share with you from Jesus comes from the book of John chapter 13. In this gathering, it's not the the crowds, it's not his followers, it's his 12 apostles. And in John 13, Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. And on the last evening he spends with his disciples, he does something profound, something that shocked them. And beginning in verse 3, we read about it. He says, John writing, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he'd come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. And he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And if you skip down to verse 12, it says, when he'd washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, Jesus said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you, do, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The third thing Jesus does for us is that he modeled the path for his disciples. Jesus modeled the path that he wanted us to walk. 
something interesting happens in the first part of that passage. Jesus gets down, says he takes off his outer garment, which is a, a polite way of saying he literally stripped down to like nothing. He puts on this towel and he gets down to wash their feet. And Peter, I love Peter. Peter's kind of all of our like inner voice that has no filter. And Peter goes, Jesus, what are you doing? And uh, he's like, I'm going to wash your feet. And, and if I could give you a picture of what I think Peter's face looks like in this moment, it'd be this face right here. He grimaces. You're going to wash my feet? What are you going to do, Jesus? He says, for, for Peter, I have given you an example that you should do just as I've done to you. Peter knew in that moment, the reason why he grimaced in the first part of the text is because he knows what you don't know. Because none of you have a rabbi that you're following along every day. But Peter did. And in the day of Jesus, if you had a rabbi, there was a principle that the student is not greater than the rabbi. The student is not greater than the teacher. And so Peter knows what we're about to figure out at the end of the passage, which is whatever Jesus does as his rabbi, Peter has to do. Spoiler alert, Peter, I'm going to ask you to wash feet too. And so Peter knows if you don't wash my feet, then I don't have to wash somebody else's feet. But Jesus says, no, Peter, for I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And so what Jesus does is he washes their feet and in doing so calls them to wash the feet of others. Now, I know a lot of you in this room aren't feet people. And so just this picture right here on the screen is giving you the wet willies. So I have to tell you that this is one of the most remarkable things that Jesus does. He is the most powerful person on earth. And yet he takes the position that be, would be held by the least servant. If you were the lowest servant in a household, when all the people came in after walking around with their sandals on, on dirt roads, with their dirty, grimy feet, the lowest servant would wash their feet. And Jesus takes the position of the lowest servant and he washes their feet. And the thing is, we all like to talk about the idea of service. I mean, we do to a degree. You know, there really are no sold-out servant conferences in the world. There are sold-out leadership conferences everywhere. But there are no sold-out servant conferences. And that's because we all like the idea of being a servant until someone treats us like one. Right? We love the idea of serving until somebody treats us like a servant. Because a servant doesn't get a pat on the back every time or a thank you note or a Starbucks gift card every time they serve. A servant gets overlooked. A servant doesn't get the credit. And we all love the idea, I'm going to serve like Jesus. I'm going to serve like Jesus. Wait, I'm getting treated like a servant. And somewhere along the way, I think we forgot the idea that we cannot become like Jesus unless we do what Jesus did. And you cannot become like Jesus 
unless you serve. You won't know what it's like to experience what Jesus did until you get treated like a servant. And especially in the context of somebody who's not like you. A couple of days ago, I stumbled on this quote from Bob Goff. He said, there's a big difference between liking Jesus and being like Jesus. And he said, we would never be able to be like him unless we loved our enemies. Man, I, I love Jesus. But there's a big difference between loving Jesus and loving being like Jesus. There's a difference between loving what Jesus does and then doing it yourself. And he said, you will be like me when you love your enemies. And this is why I tell you that Jesus would not have the biggest church in town. I'm not saying he'd have a smaller one because he was a pretty good teacher. I just think he made people really uncomfortable. Because the way that he was calling people to live didn't make sense according to the ways of the world. And so I want to challenge you with some questions to reflect on today. And the first one is this. Who do I regularly interact with who fits the category of not like me? Who's somebody in your life that in just your normal pattern of life, where you live, where you work, where you study, where you play, who do you normally interact with? Man, that person is so not like me. Who's that person? Put a name on it. Put a face on it. Then number two, what prayer can I begin to pray for them today? What, where's the place that I can begin to pray? What need do they have? What's going on in their life? What struggle are they facing? And how can I begin to pray for them for that? And then number three, how can I serve them like Jesus served me? Because remember the big idea? If you want to transform a relationship, serve the other person. So what need do they have? What struggle are they going through? What do you have that they lack? What do you know how to do that they don't know how to do? And how can you begin to serve them? As I was preparing this message, this face came to mind. This is my friend, Malenga Chela. Malenga was born in Zambia, in Africa. And I met him about 10 years ago when I spoke at a pastor's conference in Zambia. I saw him again two years ago when I went over to see the Mwansas who were here last week at Cornerstone and spoke again at a pastor's conference with Malenga. And if, if time travel worked or Star Trek, you could zap somebody from one point to another, I'd have Malenga right here with me. Because Malenga's story is the embodiment of what we've been talking about today. But we don't have Star Trek zapping technology yet, but we do have YouTube. And Malenga's story is on YouTube, and I've selected just a portion for him to share with you today because he is the embodiment of this message. Watch the screen. My name is Mulenga Chela. I'm from Africa. I was born in the nation called Zambia. In my last year of secondary education, I heard the Lord call me into ministry. And from that day onwards, I purposed to serve the Lord in full-time ministry as a minister. I became actively involved in a number of ministries that included street kids ministry, hospital chaplaincy, and a number of other ministries. Then the leaders in the church I was a part of saw the call of God on my life, and they gave me the first church to lead at the age of 20. When I started leading that church, I saw my need of going to seminary. In my second year at seminary, our lecture was 
teaching us on surrendering to the will of God and leadership preparation. And he talked about how God prepares people for leadership through trials and the challenges that we go through in life. And he used Joseph in the book of Genesis as an example. Our lecture in the midst of his lecture pointed at me and said, God can even take this young man here, Mulenga, from here and send him off into prison the way he took Joseph into prison and prepare him for ministry. When our lecture said those words, I looked at him in shock. I thought, why has he used me as an example over such an awful thing? Ten months later, I met a man in my home nation, Zambia, and the man said he was a missionary helping orphans and widows in Tanzania. The man invited me to go with him to Tanzania. And when we started off and arrived in the nation of Tanzania, to my shock and surprise, police officers pounced on us. They said the man that I was traveling with, who said he was a missionary, was actually an international criminal. And the vehicle that he was driving that I was riding on was a car that he had stolen. And since I was with an international criminal in a stolen vehicle and I was a foreigner in that nation, they said I must have been a criminal. And they ended up putting me in prison for two years in Africa. I was put in police lockup. Inside that police station, there was a small room about the size of a bedroom that had 30 men inside of it. It was crowded. The food was served in a dish and prisoners fought for food and ate like animals. The toilet was right in the corner of that room and it was broken. So all the human excrement just piled up right in the corner. When I was uh, taken into that police station, I had money equivalent to $5, which I decided to give to the pol police officer. But the other men who were arrested before me could see that I had money. And when the police officer grabbed the money from me and locked me up with them, the men inside that uh, police lockup jumped on me, held my hands and legs, started searching me. They punched me, beat me up, and finally threw me into the toilet that had human excrement. And I cried. I said, Lord, why? Why have you allowed me to suffer like this after I've been seeking you and serving you faithfully? From there, I was taken into the men prison. African prisons are congested prisons. The prison that I was in was constructed to hold 1,500 men, but it now had 5,000 men. In the room where we slept, the room was constructed to hold 15 men, and we were about 50 to 75 maximum men. It was congested. The food in prison was bad and awful. And after going into prison, I started complaining. I thought, Lord, after I have been seeking you and serving you faithfully, how could you allow me to be imprisoned? While I was there, I met a man who has been wrongfully been in prison since 1973. He's now 43 years old in prison for a crime that he did not commit. And the man passionately preaches the gospel in prison, running from one end of the prison to the other. And after I saw this man and heard his testimony, the man inspired me to preach the gospel 
with him. So this became my daily activity in prison. In the morning, after being released from the rooms, would preach the word of God. In the afternoon, after having our main bad meal, we continued preaching the word of God. In the evening, I had the privilege of being locked up in a reception where all the people who were imprisoned in prison were put in the first few days. And I had the privilege of preaching the word of God to them. I am grateful to the Lord that during my time in prison, I had the privilege of preaching the word of God to men who had lived wicked lives as criminals. I preached the word of God to Muslims. I preached the word of God to men who had never been in church. And I'm grateful for the lives that the Lord saved and transformed. How did I get out of prison? The man who had deceived me and told me that he was uh, a missionary and yet he was an international criminal was arrested with me. And after spending a few months in prison, his true colors manifested. The man was a wicked man, a crafty man, who made enemies with the most feared criminals in prison together with the prison authorities. He had plans of escaping from prison, and when his plans failed, he decided to end his life by taking an overdose of medicine. And instead of dying, he became very, very sick. When the prison officer saw that he was sick, he called me into his office and said, Mulenga, we know that you are a genuine servant of God, and we know that this man who deceived you is a true criminal. We advise you that now that he's sick, leave him alone, don't help him. I'm grateful to the Lord that when I walked into prison, I carried my Bible with me. And I read that Bible every day. I prayed through the Bible every day. And as I read the word of God in prison, I felt the word of God become alive to me. I felt the Lord speak to me, strengthen me, encourage me. And he gave me grace to carry on during my time in prison. As I was reading the Bible, I came across Matthew chapter 5 verse 44. Says, Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And as I continued praying and reading the Bible, I felt the word of God become alive to me, telling me to love my enemy, love the very man who was responsible for my imprisonment. It was a difficult thing to do because the prison authority had already told me that if I helped that man, there were chances that I would be convicted for a crime that I did not do because they would see me as his ally. But God was encouraging me and telling me to love my enemy. And by the grace of God, I responded in obedience to the word of God and reached out to my enemy who was very sick in a comatose. He couldn't walk. He couldn't go to the restroom. He simply lay on the bed. I had the responsibility of feeding him, clothing him, washing him, cleaning his underwear, cleaning all of his mess. I literally took care of the man who was responsible for my imprisonment the way a mother cares for a baby. When I was doing that awful work, I started thinking to myself, I thought, what's life? What's the meaning of life when you have been wrongfully imprisoned? You are in a prison eating bad food. What's life? It was in those moments the Lord started teaching me that life is an opportunity that God gives to us. Life is an opportunity to love, to serve, to honor God and mankind. That even though I was wrongfully imprisoned for two years, God had given me a great opportunity in prison to love my enemy, to save my enemy, and to honor God by doing that. So as I continued helping this man, cleaning him, feeding him, I started saying to the Lord from the depth of my my heart. I said, Lord Jesus, 
I love you. As I continue caring for this man, I'm doing it for you. I'm doing it as an expression of my love for you. Lord Jesus, I love you. And as I said those words, amazingly, I felt the presence of the Lord rest upon me. I felt the peace of God that transcends all human understanding. Two weeks later, the man recovered. Finally, on the day of judgment, he stood up, pointed at me and said, that man is an innocent man. He doesn't know anything about all my criminal activities. I simply carried him in the vehicle that I was driving as an ordinary passenger. And those words, the man I helped spoke in court, opened the door for me to be released, and he was convicted for 10 years. If uh, Malenga was here, he would tell you, that if he didn't love his enemy, if he didn't serve his enemy, if he didn't pray for his enemy, that he'd still be in prison today. Loving your enemies, serving people like that makes zero sense in the economy of our world. But in God's economy, it makes the impossible possible. And from the day of Jesus to a prison in Tanzania, to Prescott today, there's a symbol which embodies serving. And it's the symbol of washing someone else's feet. And so this morning, the band is going to lead us in an extended time of worship. And we're going to invite you to come up and to wash somebody else's feet. Now, it may not be your enemy, but if they're here today, I'd bring them up. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's somebody who's sitting next to you. Maybe it's a child, a family member. But we're going to encourage you to take action and get in the posture of serving today by washing someone else's feet. There's a a bottle of water next to a basin that you can pour over their feet. There's a towel there to dry it. You can pray over them. You could wash the feet of another. Let's be clear. I'm asking you to get ridiculously uncomfortable right now. And I'm 100% clear on that. And I know some of you would say, why on earth would I go up there and do that? Because you're a follower of Jesus. Because you want to be like him. Because you want him to change your relationships. And this is where it begins. So if you want to come up, we'd encourage you to walk up these stairs right here. There's room for 12 pairs of people to get their feet washed. The band's going to in a couple songs. We're going to ask you to come forward and be brave and to wash somebody else's feet. So when you're ready, bring somebody with you and come up. If you came alone, we'll find somebody to wash your feet or somebody's feet for you to wash. We know it's a little bit extraordinary. I kept it hidden for a reason. That way you didn't leave when you walked in. (laughs) But this is the way we want to conclude this series today. And when you're ready, we'd encourage you to come up. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.